0: Okay, good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. Uh, let me start by reading our passage for today. Uh, this is from Matthew chapter 20 verses 1 through 16. So if you have a Bible or um, a smartphone or whatever, um, go ahead and turn to that passage. Matthew 20:1 through16. Actually, I'll start with chapter 19, verse 30. Uh, But many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the first, up to the, or at last, up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat? But he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Uh, Let's pray. Uh, Dear Lord, I thank you for your word. Uh, I pray, Lord, you would give us insight Uh, into the kingdom of heaven through this parable. um, I pray, Lord, most of all, that you would be reshaping our hearts and our attitude towards you uh, to serving, to being your people, uh, and that you would be creating um, just incredible hearts of joy and thankfulness and gratitude uh, to your salvation, to your grace uh, as a result of your grace for us. We thank you for Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. All righty. So... Let me ask you a question. How many people, uh, maybe this is a little personal, how many people who are above the age of what maybe like, let's pretend above the age of 35 have gone through something like a midlife crisis or have had friends who have gone through a midlife crisis? Can you like raise your hand? Do you guys know some, like, have you gone through one or you know some people? You don't have to say if you, you've gone through one. Uh, do you guys know what a midlife crisis is? Uh, this is actually a phenomenon. I, this is totally, I didn't, like, I didn't, I sort of didn't prepare for this, but um, th- this reminds me of a podcast I actually listen to. I talk a lot about podcasts, have you noticed? Um, there's a podcast I listened to that actually uh, charted the history of the concept of a midlife crisis in uh, psychological circles. So they were looking at the literature where people had done studies and written around this concept of, um, or this phenomenon of a midlife crisis. And what they've kind of discovered over time is that happiness is like a U-shaped curve. And you start off, So I think the studies show that when you're in your early 20s, maybe when you're in college or your mid-20s, uh, that is the very peak of your happiness. And then it's all downhill from there. And then at about 45 to 50, you hit your midlife crisis, the very bottom. And people are tremendously... So, okay, it's it's like, obviously, there's a spectrum, right? So some people are less happy at the bottom. Um, and then what's interesting is, as you get older, probably as you start, like, having more free time, maybe you have grandkids or you just kind of figure out your place in life and maybe you're like are getting close to retirement age, your happiness starts going back up to the top, right? So this is something that they've studied and they've observed this to be relatively common uh, in the data, right? So many people go through this midlife crisis um, and what it is, uh, how people respond to it is there are all kinds of like stereotypes, right? Like the biggest stereotype is like, oh, you're a 45-year-old man, you're stressed out, you're raising your kids, you're taking care of your parents, um, life is such a pain, so you do what? You go by a boat or you go buy a motorcycle, or you do something like Does anyone? Why why did Callie just look at Ken? (laughs) What what is going on here? (laughs) Did you raise your hand about the midlife crisis? Um, So this is actually something that's relatively common. So a lot of people raise their hands. Um, But what we're going to talk about today from this parable is something slightly different. This is so lame, but you're going to love it, I hope. It's probably just lame my wife is going to make fun of me. Um, I want to call this a mid-Christ crisis. Okay? It's not a mid-life crisis, it's a mid-Christ crisis. And what I mean by that is in the same way that often um, your life as a Christian might start at a high point. I mean this is just, look, this is a total generalization. But if you look at if you look at this parable and if you look at the way the New Testament talks about being a Christian, uh, there's actually an interesting thing that happens where if you look really closely, a lot of the letters in the New Testament, a lot of the teachings Jesus talks about, even in some of the parables we talked about earlier, have to do not with how you begin as a Christian, like what it means to be a Christian to like be saved, but it's actually how do you continue as a Christian. And so uh, a lot of the sermon is based on my favorite preacher, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he has my favorite book. This is my favorite book. My it used to be a different book. It used to be like I loved the Lord of the Rings. I loved Harry Potter. Different books like that. But this is probably the most influential book in my in my life as a Christian. Um, it's called Spiritual Depression, and he talks about uh, if so. He says a lot of things, but let me give you the thesis. Um, the thesis is, as Christians, when you look at the New Testament, it is expected and it is normal for Christians to be joyful, for Christians to have perseverance, um, for them to be witnesses of the love of Jesus by exhibiting joy in in suffering, uh, by showing care and sacrificial love for one another, by just being able to rejoice in the Lord. And what's interesting is he says many of us as Christians Do not exhibit those characteristics in the way that we should. And he says that there are many issues that come, come into play. It could be at the beginning of your Christian life, where you misunderstand the nature of salvation. And he talks about how many Christians flip the order of justification and sanctification, where many Christians think that you are justified based on the things you do for God. So you've got it wrong, you flipped it. And what happens as a result of misunderstanding the gospel and salvation? You become spiritually depressed. And a lot of this book actually talks about how the devil, the God of this world, is at work trying to cause Christians to be mopey, to be depressed. And his strategy is basically like, why would anyone want to be a Christian when you, when, if, if you're not a Christian and you look at the, the people who say they're Christians and they're mopey, they're depressive, they're bitter, they're grumbling, why would you want to be a Christian? And so D. Martin Lloyd Jones says he was a medical doctor, right? It's so important that we diagnose our spiritual depression uh, and find the causes for it. And then that leads us to not only experience the joy that God has intended for us in our Christian lives, um, and again, that joy is not flippant, it's not sentimental, um, it means basically to experience uh, buoyancy in the midst of all of these burdens and pressures and suffering and pain, but it's possible. Um, It's so important to exhibit that to the people around us. And really evangelism, which is to... Be, to, be, um, to be examples of God's love and truth to the people around us, we can't do it unless we exhibit the, the qualities that marked Jesus. And so we run into these issues, spiritual depression. Just confusing justification and sanctification is at the start of your Christian life. And if you, in a sense, receive the gospel in the wrong way, or the people who are preaching the gospel to you tell you the wrong, give you the wrong gospel— that will cause spiritual depression to ripple out through your entire Christian life. But this this parable is talking about something different where we're, we're getting to the you part, the bottom of the you part, where as you continue in your Christian life, there is a specific sort of issue that arises based on this parable that leads us to become spiritually depressed. And so what's at stake in this parable is number one, uh, your relationship with God, uh, how you see God, how you see other Christians in the church, uh, your happiness as a Christian, but also the witness of God, where if you are a spiteful person, you will be a miserable evangelist, no matter how hard you try to convert people. If you're just angry and bitter at life and God, but you feel like you're supposed to convert people, you will be completely ineffective And in in, in a sense, this is the devil getting what he wants by giving people an impression of Christians that they're miserable and, you know, they're blah, they're mopey. Um, And so, okay, now, like, I've struggled with depression, and so when I say mopey, all that stuff, like, um, I'm very aware that I probably exhibit many of these characteristics, Um, and so... This, this, uh, this actually has a lot of—the uh, the other thing that's at stake here is if you've ever served in church in any capacity, if you've been a Christian for any period of time, uh, what can very easily happen is the treasure and joy that, that led you to be a Christian—like last week we talked about the parable of the treasure in the fields, where finding salvation, finding the kingdom of heaven is a treasure that you stumble upon, and in your joy you sell everything. But at some point, there can be this subtle shift in your attitude where what originally led you to sell everything out of joy, um, you kind of grow this sense of, uh, okay, I should just, there is, a, there is a condition that we will talk about in the sermon, okay? Um, and this, is, this condition is the thing we see in the parable. Um, a little bit of context for this parable. Um, when you're reading the parables, it's really important to not do what I did. So I only read the parable. If you only read the parable, you'll have a really hard time understanding what it means. But if you read the passages immediately before this parable, you actually get a clue as to what Jesus is doing. You guys remember my definition of a parable. A parable is a story or word picture that communicates a spiritual truth which has force on the original audience, right? And in this parable, who is the original audience? If you go ahead and look at the passage before this in Matthew 19, um, let me give you a little bit of context. Number one, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, how can I have eternal life? There's this conversation about like, you know, who's good, only God's good, a lot of stuff happens. And then the end result is Jesus says, sell all your possessions, give to the poor, follow me and you will have treasure in heaven. And then the rich young ruler uh, rejects Jesus and walks away because he had many possessions. So he, ba- he basically, Jesus was inviting him into the kingdom and he said, I have too much stuff. I don't want to give it away. I want to keep my stuff. I want to hold on to my life the way my life is now. I really like it. So I can't give it up. It's too painful. And so he's saying, Jesus, following Jesus is not worth the cost of selling everything. But then, and then Jesus talks about how difficult it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then after that, Peter, the, the, the Apostle Peter, has this really interesting little statement. Um, if, you look at, if you look at verse 27 in chapter 19, um, Jesus says, With man it is impossible. So it's impossible for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven. But with God, anything is possible. So with God's power, it is possible for people who are tremendously rich to sell everything and follow Jesus. And then Peter says... See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? What's his logic here? This is the logic, this is the attitude that Jesus goes on to tell this parable about. And so by looking at the parable, we're going to understand the heart underneath Peter's question, where he says, we've left everything and followed you. What will we have? Jesus. And the other, the other thing um, I want you to notice is... The parable is bookended by, by an aphorism, right? Where in chapter 19, verse 30, it says, many who are first will be last and the last first. And then in chapter 20, verse 16, so the last will be first and the first last. Now, there's something really interesting going on in the connectives there. So Jesus is talking to Peter and he's teaching him. He's saying, if you follow me, you will receive rewards. Um, you will have eternal life. You will have relationships both now and in heaven. Um, When the new age comes, when the regeneration comes, uh, when Jesus comes back, uh, the 12 disciples will sit on 12 thrones judging Israel. So he's saying, he's answering Peter's question very like encouragingly, where he says, if you leave everything and follow me, you guys, I will reward you. But there's a warning here. He says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. And then he goes on to tell the parable. And so that word, but, is a contrast where he's saying there are great things you should expect when you become a Christian. However, there is a warning I want to give you, and this warning has to do with the mid-Christ crisis. That's the way I'm going to say it. And the parable is an illustration to reveal, to bring to light Peter's attitude. It is a rejoinder against Peter's attitude. It's a warning for us not to follow into Peter's um, sn- the snare that Peter falls into. It's so easy. And I, like I've done this many, many times. I'm sure you've done it too. Uh, let's look at what we're going to do. We're going to look at the roots and the fruits. So we're going to see this condition. I'm going to explain it. I'm going to see from the par- show you from the parable what the, out, the external results or the fruit is from the parable. And then we're going to see the antidote, okay? We're going to see the antidote to this condition. So again, if the the root of your attitude towards God as you serve or as you live the Christian life, not at the beginning, but as you continue on in the Christian life, is the attitude that Jesus is talking about in the parable that will produce certain external fruits in your life, In the way you treat people, the way you see people, the way you see God, the way you feel about God. And these things are going to be incredibly damaging to everything in your life. And I've seen people, examples of people where this has shipwrecked their faith, their relationship with God, relationship with others. Um, So let's go ahead and look at the roots and the fruit. Okay. Now, what happens in this parable? What happens in this parable? Uh, did anyone get triggered by this parable? If you were paying careful attention, there's something really interesting that happens here. Um, where, the, what's, what's kind of the punchline of the parable? What's, where's the tension point? There is a person who works for 12 hours in the field, and he is paid a denarius. There's another person who works nine hours in the field, and he's paid a denarius. There's another person who works six hours and three hours. And then it gets to the very last person, the person who's only worked one hour in the field. How much do they get? A denarius. So every single person here, all the people who work completely different hours, they get paid the same wage. And so the way the parable is told is Imagine you were the first worker. Imagine you were the first worker who worked in the vineyard. Now, this the um, this is this would have been very common, so these would have been day laborers, and there would have been many people who held these kind of positions. A rich person would come to the marketplace and try to find enough people to do the the, the day's job, and so in this case, it's working in the vineyards. So it's hot, sweaty labor. You know, I don't see, again like I I don't know what it's like to work in a vineyard. I imagine there's digging. I imagine there's planting, watering. I don't know, like you're tying up the grapes onto the stick things. And then, I don't know, maybe like in all the movies, there's like a big bucket of grapes and you're like stomping the grapes and everyone's looking really happy. And then someone falls in love, you know, like that's, that's what happens in all the rom-coms. Stomping grapes leads to love. Um, but that's what would have happened. In the marketplace, the, work, the master would have found these laborers and then got them to do his job. But then there's something really interesting that happens. He keeps on going back for more and more laborers, even though he doesn't need them, right? If he's a good, if he's a smart farmer, a smart vineyard owner, he would hire the amount he needs at the very beginning. But then he goes back and he notices that these day laborers didn't get hired by anyone. And so what's really interesting here is if you think about it, their situation, these are people who are living paycheck to paycheck, Every single day, they will not have enough money to provide for their family unless they get a job. And so this master sees them in need. He sees them being idle, and he says, you know what, even though I don't need their help that much, I could probably find a job for them. I hired enough people, but I feel bad for them. I want to help them by giving them honest labor and helping them by just paying them a little bit. So that they can have bread for tonight for their family, right? And then what's really interesting so the master is incredibly generous, and this actually would have been kind of like social welfare or something like that, uh, security net kind of thing. Um, But what's really, what's the punchline of the parable? It's from the perspective of the first hour workers. The master says, first we're gonna pay the 11th hour workers, and they get paid a denarius. And so when you look at the attitude, we're beginning to diagnose this attitude. You see this at the very beginning. When those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. That makes perfect sense, right? Where you see the people who've only worked one hour get a denarius. And so what's going on in your head? Um, You start to crunch the numbers, right? If you guys are like into math or like, this just makes sense. This just makes sense, right? When you work for the hour, you get an hourly wage. The number of hours you get times your hourly wage is the amount of money you make, right? And so, when they're seeing the 11th hour workers going by, they say they worked 1 hour. They were paid 1 denarius. Therefore, you are paid 1 denarius for every hour that you work. We've worked 12 hours. Therefore, we should get 12 denarius, right? And so you can kind of think you can kind of think their eyes are getting bigger. They're like, we're going to get paid even more than we thought we would. This is a lot of money. You know, we're getting paid overtime. This is great. We're going to get a lot. And then what happens? The master gives them one denarius. And so really, if you're listening to this story, your reaction should be there is something incredibly unfair. There's something really weird going on here. And what is Jesus saying? He's saying that there is something wrong. There is something wrong about Peter's attitude When he he asks that question, what do I get? If you think that the kingdom of heaven works like being an hourly worker, there's something wrong in your attitude. There's something wrong, okay? So let's kind of look at the fruit and the root of this condition. So each of them also received a a denarius and then they start to grumble, where it says they grumbled at the master of the house. This condition is marked by comparison Where you look at the other people, if they only paid attention to the wages they had got and they weren't watching the 11th hour workers, they would be fine, right? They would be perfectly happy because they got the wage that they agreed for at the beginning of the day. But instead, they start to compare themselves with the other workers. And if you look in verse 12, um, it says, these last worked only one hour and you've made them equal to us. So what are they saying? They're looking at these other people, and they're calling them the last ones. So they've only worked an hour, and you've made them equal to us, right? There's something really interesting going on there, where they're kind of putting themselves above these people on the basis of the time that they've worked. And so this is all revealing something about this attitude that can take place in our mid-Christ crisis. But let's keep on looking at these fruit. Um, They say this. Uh, You have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. So when they're talking to the master, what do they say? They try to assert their rights and make an argument by saying, look at all the stuff that we've done for you. Shouldn't you pay us more? We've gone through the heat of the day. If you started working, so when it says the first hour, that means 6 a.m. So they've worked from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. It's a long day, but that's what the hours were like back there. then if you're a day laborer. And so they've worked at 6 a.m. when it was really cool. And again, this is like in the, in the, the Near East. So like if you imagine what the weather is like there, it's like a desert. You know, it's really, really cold at night often. It's really, really hot in the middle of the day. When the sun's beating down on you, there is no shade. You're just dying. It's like 110 degrees. It's like that heat wave we had, right? It's like doing manual labor in the middle of that crazy heat wave. Um, and they're saying, we had to work in the heat. But the 11th hour workers started at 5 PM. And so the sun had already started to drop. Uh, the, it wasn't as much direct sunlight. They didn't have to work for as long. So it's the cumulative wear and fatigue of working hour after hour after hour in the heat. And so they say, look at what we've done. We've worked longer. We've suffered more. Therefore, you owe us more. What does this attitude look like for us as Christians? I hope you see where Jesus is going with this parable. Let me tell you how to have a mid-Christ crisis. If you haven't had one yet, let me give you three steps. This is like a clickbait title. Let me give you three steps to have a mid-Christ crisis. This is all based on the parable. Number one keep track of your stats. If you wanna be miserable serving as a Christian, pay careful attention to your stats. So when when I started uh, playing basketball when I was in third grade, my dad was my basketball coach. And honestly, I don't know why he did this, um, but it, it gave me a really big head. So I was pretty good as a third, I was like the LeBron James of basketball players when I was in third grade, and then it was all downhill from there. Because I knew how to dribble, I was obsessed with dribbling, I was relatively fast and I could make layups. So I am LeBron James of the third graders cuz I can just dribble really good. I can steal the ball from people and I just dri- dribble right to the basket faster than everyone and make a layup. And so my dad in our league, he would actually keep track of our stats. And so I remember, okay, I don't know if this is true or not, but I remember there is one game where supposedly I had 31 points. I had more than 10 assists. And I had 11 steals, which is kind of a crazy stat line, right? That's a, that's a pretty crazy stat line. Um, it was all downhill from there. I like, just very much like got worse after that. Do you keep your stats when it comes to serving in church? Is your attitude, do you see the fruit of the people in the parable where they're paying very careful attention to themselves and they're counting up their hours they're clocking their time card. They're saying, this is how many hours I've worked for church this week. This, and then number two, you think of yourself both in terms of how long you've worked, but also the suffering you've endured. And as a result of that, you're, you're keeping track, and there's a sense of God owes you something. There's a sense that you have earned something from God on the basis of the work that you've done for him, and he owes you something, right? Right. And so this is really interesting. If you want to be miserable as a Christian, you should make covert contracts with God where he owes you stuff. And this is really subtle. And when I talk about this, I don't know if you guys will even recognize the ways that you go about doing this. For example, you make covert contracts with God by saying, if I read the Bible this amount, God owes me to make me feel better. If I'm feeling down, And I go to church on Sunday because I did this thing for God. I'm making a big sacrifice. I'm really tired after work. And if I go to church, God owes me to make me feel better. And if he, if he doesn't, you get resentful, you get bitter. And you, and the, the, one of the main fruit that I didn't talk about is they grumble at the master of the house. They grumble at God because he's not treating them fairly and he's not giving them what they deserve. And so, um, again, we can get back to the midlife, mid-Christ crisis Christians where you've probably met Christians. And I, like, again, I am very guilty of this. Um, during the pandemic, I've spent a lot of time grumbling to Dan. And Dan is less grumbly than I am. Um, he's very positive. He's very optimistic. Um, and this, this passage has been striking me. Because when I'm grumbling to Dan, I'm like, look at all the work we put in. It's so difficult being a pastor in the opinion. It's so hard, blah, 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 blah. And then like, why doesn't anything happen? Like, what are you doing, God? I'm making a contract with God. A, what This is what people call a covert contract where you have expectations of someone that you don't express to them and you become resentful because they don't meet what you want. They don't do what you want. So in, in like a romantic relationship, uh, you kind of have these these like hidden. This it's like a hidden agenda where it's like I wash the dishes, so therefore my wife has to let me play two hours of video games. I did my chores. I get her get her off my back, right? But you don't tell her. You don't say if I wash the dishes, can I play video games for two hours? You just do it, and and then you get mad at her when she's like, "Why are you playing so much video games?" It's a covert contract, and the moment you become you get in a dating relationship, you probably will experience this all the time. But this is much more insidious when it comes to God and when it comes to church because we have all these expectations of God. And so when you hit disappointment in your life, when life doesn't turn out the way you want, there is a part of our hearts that can, can kind of turn cold against God where we say, God, I do so much for you, don't I? Don't I work so hard for you, God? you owe me this. You owe me this amount of money or you owe me this amount of happiness or this amount of comfort or you owe me a romantic relationship like the boyfriend-girlfriend that I want. But again, that attitude, that attitude of earning has nothing to do with the kingdom of heaven. And in the kingdom of heaven, the way that the books work, like if you're an accountant, you, you have the books The way the books work is completely different than this very typical uh, kind of workplace model of an hourly wage. So you keep track of your stats, you make covert contracts with God, and then this is the third one, this is where it gets directly to Peter's question. Peter says, I am completely sold out for you, I've given up everything for you, therefore you owe me something, right? Right? Look at all the suffering I've endured for you. You have, to, you have to make my life turn out a certain way. You owe me because I'm so sold out for you. And so uh, this one is, is, this is actually really interesting. This one does not generally, there are some people who are kind of, what I would say, like they don't really understand the gospel. They're kind of like, they don't really understand God. They just use God to get stuff that they want. But what's really interesting is this is actually also Um, a symptom of the mid-Christ Christians who are, you know, ministry workers, um, who are the most hardest working people in the church. They are the most committed and the most zealous for God. They've sacrificed the most for God. And this is really interesting. You see pastors like this. You see, um, you know, like missionaries like this, where they had an expectation with God, if I give you everything, you have to do things the way I want. So let me tell you about... um, Let me tell you about this uh, story that my seminary prof, Steve Korch, told. Uh, He actually spoke at our last all-church retreat before the pandemic, and then he actually passed away not uh, not too long ago. But he would tell this story. So he was pastor of a church in Santa Cruz, like a relatively big church. He's a relatively well-known seminary uh, professor and author, all of these different things. And he would talk to us about pastors' conferences. And when pastors go to pastor conferences— what they do, the very first thing you ask all the other pastors is, Oh, so how big is your church? And then the people who have the biggest churches, they're like, Oh, my church is 5,000. We grew like 2,000 in the last five years. And then the person who has like a smaller church, they're just like, Honestly, what he said was, There's a tendency to fudge the numbers. There's a tendency to inflate your numbers so that you feel better about yourself because. It's all about your church size. And the people with the biggest churches are the ones who get the book contracts. They're the ones that get paid the most for their speaking engagements because everyone wants to replicate their success, right? And so what he told us was as a pastor and a seminary professor, sometimes he would look at the other people who he's known um, and he knows them. like He actually knows these mega church leaders and he looks at them and he's like, they're not really that gifted. Some of them don't even have good character. They don't exhibit the fruit of the spirit. And yet their church grows so much. And he basically said, he basically said, there is a tendency for him to be disappointed and resentful to God because he looks at what he's done for God and he thinks to himself, why isn't my church as big as that church? You see what I'm saying here? What's going on here? There's comparison. There's saying, God, we made a deal. If I do these things for you, you I, there's a covert contract, you owe me a bigger church. Now, where this, where this really hits us is when you're serving in ministry in any capacity, it doesn't matter what it is, we all have expectations about what impact our efforts will do, will have. Like if I do this Bible study, if I preach this sermon, if I play music really good, this will happen. This many people will come to our church. This many people will be converted. This many people will be saved. Whatever expectation you have. And again, it's all not the kingdom of heaven. It's the kingdom of this world. It's comparing yourself to other people. It's saying God is not treating me fairly because I worked so hard. I suffered so much. I, I'm so, like, like why why? Why is that untalented person having a big church when, like, I'm so much better? You know? And again, I'm definitely not immune to this. You know, I am definitely not immune to this. Uh, You guys probably experienced this maybe in your regular lives, non-ministry lives on social media, right? Where you look at someone who has those like travel photos and you're like, or you look at someone who has that huge house or whatever, and you're like, man, they're not even that smart. I can't believe they make that much money. I can't believe they have all that stuff. It doesn't make any sense. It's not fair. It's not fair. And there's this attitude with God, right? where, God, you owe me something. And so what happens? You become envious, and this can come out in really nasty ways in the church, where people become resentful of other ministry workers, of other people who are serving the church, uh, because they're not getting the same type of attention or approval. You know, They don't get the same type of acclaim. Uh, people don't you know, praise them as much, whatever it might be. But here's the thing. It's never enough. It's never enough. If you feel this way, no matter how much people praise you, it'll never be enough. There will always will be someone who you look at and say, oh, they get more praise than me. So you become envious and you become grumbling. This is what the condition is. This is what the fruit is. Is any of this looking familiar to you? This is what the parable is saying. How do you cure this condition? You have to look at the generosity of the master. What does God say? What does the parable say in response to these grumbling workers? He says, number one, you agreed to it, right? You agreed for me to pay you a denarius. So what are you complaining about? You're only complaining because you're looking at those other people and the master has been so incredibly gracious and generous to them. That's the only reason you're complaining. And he says, I choose to be generous to the person who's only worked an hour the same way I choose to be generous to you. And so if you're serving in ministry and you feel like you're more committed and more sold out than the people around you, man, this is incredibly amazing if you think about it in a different way. What it means is when you work for God, you really have no clue what the impact is gonna be and the outcome is gonna be. And you also have no clue what when that other person is doing things for God, what their impact could be. Like, like someone could just like come out of nowhere. And, you know, they didn't go to seminary. They didn't do anything. They're just an average Joe, like, working a nine-to-five job. And then God calls them into ministry. And all of a sudden, he completely blesses them with, like, incredible success. And many people are saved. And that's so exciting. In the same way, when you're serving in ministry, if you're doing something that requires preparation, this is what D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says. He says, it is so romantic to think about ministry this way. When you understand how the kingdom of heaven works— there is not a direct mechanical connection between what you put in and what you get out. The number of hours of preparation you do preparing a sermon has very little connection, okay, has has very little connection with um, the impact it can have. Why? Because God, in Ephesians, it says, God is able to do far more than we can ask or think. This is the accountancy of the kingdom of heaven The people you would least expect are the very ones God chooses to have such a powerful impact. And the people who often, like when you don't work as much, just based on God's graciousness, he can use you so powerfully. The moments you think you're doing really bad, sometimes God uses that to make the biggest impact on people's lives this is a spiritual principle that runs throughout all of scripture and you can see it to some degree in this parable. But but all all I'm saying to you is rather than comparing yourself to other people, rather than looking and counting and tallying up how many hours you worked, how hard it's been, look at the generosity of the master. And so this parable is saying, remember, go back. Remember the graciousness of God to you. Do you realize what God has done for you? Do you remember what Jesus Christ has done for you? Do you understand the spiritual blessings that he's given you? And again, this is where our covert contracts come into play. The Bible never, ever says, the Bible never, ever promises, if you become a Christian, you will be, uh, you will be, re- you will be what do you call it? Um, you will be invincible from suffering. Never promises that. Never promises to uh, omit suffering from your life. But many of us think that. What the Bible does promise is Jesus says, in Christ, you have every spiritual blessing. And if you can't understand, if you're a grumbling Christian, it's probably because you had that contract with God where you thought your life circumstances would go a certain way. And and we can be really shallow. We really can. It could be money. It could be ministry success. It could be girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever it might be. And then we become bitter and we forget the generosity of God. Because what spiritual blessings do we have? If I were to ask you this question, what good is God to you? What would you say? If I were to ask you, what are the spiritual blessings you have in Christ? What would you say? Would you be able to give an answer? Would you be able to say, this is why I rejoice in Christ? Let me give you a few. I rejoice in Christ because in Christ, I am dead to sin and alive to God. Sin has lost its power in my life because of being identified with Jesus dying on the cross and being crucified. And then when he raised from the dead, I can be raised into new life, new joy, new strength, where I'm reconciled to God. I have a heavenly father who loves me. I have the Holy Spirit who's with me, who pours out love in my heart, who is my comforter and my guide. I have the forgiveness of sins. I have the hope of eternal life. If any of those things has any meaning to you, that means you can be grateful no matter what circumstances are going on. And God, Jesus constantly tells us to expect suffering. And so the the key is like, don't make those contracts with God. Don't do it. Instead say, if you become a Christian, do you know what God promises will happen? You will share in the sufferings of Christ. Did you, you get that? That's what Jesus promises. He promises you will suffer, but he promises the suffering will be worth it. And he promises the Holy Spirit will be your comforter. And the comfort that God gives you in your affliction, he will redeem and use to comfort other people in their affliction who are inflicted the same way. Instead, we begrudge God's generosity where we say God is so gracious and he lavishes all these gifts on this other person. But what about me? Let God be generous to who He pleases, and let leave God uh, the His give God the prerogative to give outcomes, whatever outcome. Okay. Anyway, let me keep going. We're running out of time. Um, John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, has a really great quote. When I'm saying this, some of you might be thinking, Daniel, it's not fair. I, I don't care what you say; it's not fair. The circumstances that God is putting me through. There's a really profound quote. If you're going through that situation, if you're, you're having a hard time and you're, you find yourself resentful towards God and resentful towards other people in the church, um, I just want you to think about this. Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. And there's actually a psalm that says God does not withhold any, anything good from those who are his people who love him. This is a really profound quote. This means if you're going through suffering right now, rather than being mad at God and grumble and complain, instead you can say, for some reason, God is sending, and again, okay, I'm not talking about like, I'm not talking about like really crazy tragedies. Like that's a whole nother ball, that's a whole nother ball game. And this does apply to those as well but what I'm talking in particular about is the regular, normal difficulties and suffering we go through in life. And we often become resentful about those things and grumble about those things, right? But what's really crazy is everything is needful that he sends, which means your life circumstances are a result of God sending you what you need. Sending you what you need to grow as a Christian, in a sense to have your character built, but also for you to learn more about God, to more experience his comfort in your affliction. And so as, as a result of that, to refine your faith and make you a joyful Christian. Getting, he uses suffering in your life to move you from a spiritually depressed Christian to someone who can say, like Nabil Qureshi did, all suffering is worth it to follow Jesus, He is just that amazing, right? You need these circumstances. That doesn't mean your suffering is good. That doesn't mean the circumstances are easy. That doesn't mean God doesn't, like, his heart doesn't go out to you for the difficulty of your circumstances. But what it means is God would never allow you to suffer needlessly. He turns your suffering and redeems it for your good. And then, so do you see how that changes your bargaining with God? This is really profound. You guys should go home and think about this because you, you, I can't just explain it to you. Second part, nothing can be needful that he withholds. A lot of the times we're resentful at God because you feel like he's withholding something from you. You compare yourself to all the people on social media or all the people in church, and you say, look at all the stuff they have, but he's holding out on me. He's not giving me the same thing that that person has. You know, romantic relationship, um, money, like whatever, ministry success, all the different things that we care about. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. Let me give you one short example of this. Uh, do I want to be a successful pastor? Actually, let me, let me say this differently. Do I want to be a celebrity pastor? Absolutely not. Do you want your kid, if you have a kid, would you want them to be a child celebrity actor? Absolutely, <laughs> Ashley's like, yeah, Toby's going to be... No, I-, I would absolutely not want that. Do you know why? Because of how incredibly toxic success is. And so when God withholds things like success from us, he does that because we can't handle it. And there is a documentary that came out not too long ago about basically interviewing child actors who whose lives had been absolutely destroyed as a result of... All the fame, all the success, all the money, all the drugs, all of that stuff, right? And so in the same way, there might be things that you want in your life that God hasn't given you yet. Number one, you don't know if he's actually never going to give you it, but he might give you it later, but he hasn't given it you yet to you yet. But if he never does, it's because he is, he is not going to withhold anything that you really need to grow as a Christian, Um, That's profound. There's a lot to say about that, but I can't. Okay, so let's look at the antidote one more time. Rather than saying, look at how much I've done for you, God, if you're working really hard for church, like Tammy, you're working so hard, you're doing so much stuff, um, did you know that everything you do is powered by grace? The only reason you have the desire to serve in church is because God has regenerated you And in Philippians, this is a really awesome verse. It says, um, uh, work out your salvation with fear and trembling uh, because it is he who works in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. That was a mouthful. What it says is even the desire you have to serve God comes from God. And so when you have a desire to serve God, you can't boast in it. You can't boast in your commitment to God because he created that desire in you. And so, again, you can't make yourself superior to other people. You can't feel self righteous about the things you do because God made you to do them. God gave you the desire. God equipped you to do those good things. In Ephesians 2, it says, God prepared good works that we should walk in them. This is how, as a Christian, if you understand this, you will never get a big head, no matter what you accomplish. You look at amazing pastors. You look at D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. You look at Charles Spurgeon. You look at amazing pastors. They've all dealt with these temptations to think yourself superior. But there are so many Christians who are so faithful and so successful, and they're so humble. They're constantly pointing to God and saying, it's not I who did it. It's God that did it. I mean, I, par- I partnered with God. I took responsibility for my faith. I, did, I made effort. I did stuff. But everything is grace. All of my efforts, all of the outcomes, everything is grace. And so be faithful to what God has told you to do. It could be very simple, it doesn't have to be big and flashy. Just be faithful to God today and then leave the outcomes to God. Don't look at your paycheck, just pay attention to what you're doing every single day. You want to be faithful to God. You want to serve and love the person in your life that God wants you to serve today. Don't, get a, don't have grandiosity in your head. Number three, if you're struggling with this, if you find yourself to be grumbling, pray this prayer. David prays, restore to me the joy of my salvation. If you're grumbling, if you're in that mid-Christ crisis, do you remember the joy of being a Christian, of experiencing the forgiveness of your sins, of knowing that Christ died on the cross for you, and he rose from the dead, and the Holy Spirit, again, is pouring out love in your heart. You have a Heavenly Father who is so, who is so proud of you for everything you're doing, and he wants the best for you, and he's working in your life. And then finally, all of life is grace. Uh, if you're, again, what's at stake here? If we are grumbling Christians, we are not being the witness God intends us to be. I don't care how hard you work for ministry. If, again, if Jesus Christ and his kingdom is not a treasure to you, to the point where you can say, again, this is targeted at me, because I grumble all the time. It's like, oh, I'm so tired. You know, like, Toby only slept three hours. Like, I'm so tired doing sermon prep. I can grumble like, like the best of them. But I need to repent of that. And I need to say, God you are so worth it. You are so worth serving you even when I'm tired. And not only that, in serving you while I'm tired and struggling and suffering, you show up in such incredible ways, bringing me the comfort and strength I need to get through. If you're grumbling, if you're complaining, everything is needful that he sends, nothing is needful that he withholds. The master is so generous and gracious with you. And so all you have to do is turn to him and say, God, I have this problem. I have this attitude. Can you show me your generosity and grace anew so that I can have the joy that I once knew when I first became a Christian? Will you pray with me? Dear Lord, I pray, Father, as we take communion, you would be reminding us of your grace um, you would be restoring to us the joy of our salvation. And I pray more than anything, Lord. Um, when we sing to you, when we gather to you together um, to worship you, we would be so joyful. You would make us into people who are characterized, who are known by the joy we have in you and the excitement we have, and gratitude and thankfulness rather than grumbling, um, complaining, comparing, envious, Uh, being envious, being resentful, being embittered. Um, So I pray you would forgive us uh, for the ways we've done that, uh, and you would restore to us the joy of your salvation, even as we take um, your uh, body and your blood. I pray you would do that in our hearts and in the ways we need. In Jesus' name, amen.